Okay, so we are going to continue on with our study. We are in lesson number eight today in Genesis. And um, uh, as I mentioned last week, what I want to do is kind of take a little bit of a a break from the actual text um, in that I want us to spend quite a bit of time on the Genesis uh, day six and the creation of man, the second part of that that part of Genesis chapter one and the creation of man. Because obviously you're, we're being introduced to sort of a biblical anthropology, and that becomes obviously critically important to us as we understand everything that follows um, throughout the, the, the history of man and, and the, actually the redemptive plan of God. So I want to take more time to kind of settle in there. But just to kind of do another flyby, we, we've gone through the days of creation, creation day one, Genesis chapter one, verses one to five, the creation of time, space, and matter, the creation of light the declaration of it being good and the end of that day with an evening and a morning the first day. So that, that, that pattern is set up with uh, actually establishing creation and the creation narrative as 24-hour periods of time and, and the passing of, of day and night um, on the first day and so forth. So creation day two, uh, verses six to eight, we see the creation of the atmosphere, sort of the inhabitable or breathable atmosphere sometimes referred to as the, the firmament that, that encircles the earth and it separates the waters above from the waters below. Um, this was named heaven as it is above and it constitutes everything visible above us. Um, and then there was the close of that day again, that same pattern with evening and morning the second day. Creation day three, we looked at this on, in verses 9 to 13 of Genesis chapter 1. The forming of dry land, the gathering together of the waters into seas, the separation again from land and water. So you have this, this separating work that God does um, in, in this creation narrative. Um, again, noticing that it was dry land, so it was preparing a place for habitation. Um, and then the verdict of God was named again. That he, was, he saw that it was good in verse 10. And then continuing on with day three, we see the sprouting forth, the beginning of filling the creation. So you have the forming of the creation at the beginning, and then you start to see God filling what he has created into into this habitation. He begins with vegetation and seed-bearing plants and fruit-bearing trees with seeds, each according to their kind. So we're introduced to this this creation um, pattern when when he begins to fill the earth with 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 a habitation of creating things after their kind, each after their kind. Again, something that would defy anything evolutionary or naturalistic in its origin. And then another verdict is is declared by God of, of its goodness in verse 12, and then there's the close of that day of evening and morning, the third day. Then we get to creation day four, um, the sun, moon, and stars. So then we have us looking above to see God filling the hosts of heaven uh, with sun, moon, moon, and stars. Again, a separation to separate day from night. So you have this this language of separation that's inserted there. Uh, It's given to us, these these starry hosts are given to us for signs and for seasons and for for days and for years. We looked at that in some detail and and how how we are really guided by the calendar and the calendar is driven by um, the the planetary things that that God created. The sun is the greater light to rule the day, the moon the lesser light to rule the night. We kind of dealt with this quote-unquote controversy that the sun is not truly emanating light and uh, we looked at that uh, briefly. Uh, the stars that fill the heavens, and then God declares them good. Same pattern, and then evening and morning, the fourth day. Fifth day, creation day five, verses 20 to 23, the creation of living creatures. We're introduced to this, this new term of living creatures um, that swarm the waters and fly above the expanse of the heavens. So again, God creates, 
uh, and then he, gin, he begins to fill. So he created the earth, he created the, the heavens, and now he's filling the earth and filling the heavens with living creatures. Um, no, we noticed that the things that he created were, for example, the, the birds and the fish and all the, cre- the creatures that swarm the oceans and fill the skies are already able to occupy that space, whether it's swimming or flying or whatever it is they do. So again, a, 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 a statement against this evolutionary kind of process or worldview. He got, God sees that this is good. He blesses this part of his creation and commands this part of his creation to be fruitful and multiply, another distinguishing factor of these living creatures in the multiplication uh, process or being fruitful and, again, continuing to fill the earth. So God's intention was that the earth would be filled with his creation. Um, and then there's evening and morning the fifth day. Creation day six, again, I'm flying through this. We're going we're gonna, to uh, get to the, the main subject in just a minute. Creation day six is verses 24 to 25. Uh, again, more living creatures on the earth. This is the, the creatures that are creeping on the earth or living on the earth. You've got sort of livestock, which would be kind of a reference to more domesticated uh, animals. Um, you've got creeping things, beasts of the earth. Again, not a detailed um, you know, outline of all the kinds of, of families, of species, and that kind of thing, but just a broad sweeping view of God creating the things that would dwell on the earth and the, the animal kingdom and the insect world and, and all that, that would go in between, beasts of the earth. So broad terms are used to uh, encapsulate all those creatures. And God saw that it was good. That was the first part of Creation Day 6. Uh, the second part of Creation Day 6, we didn't really get into it. We kind of stopped short of that. But let me just kind of summarize it, and then we'll come back to this later on in, a, in another study. But in Creation Day 6, verses 26 to 31, you have the creation of man, both male and female, in the image of God. Obviously, a very important uh, point of that that we'll talk about uh, in depth. God gives man dominion over creation in this section. Very important point there. Um, he blesses man. He commands man to be fruitful and multiply, similar to what he said about the other living creatures. But he adds that they are to subdue it. So they're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, but they're also to subdue the earth. So there's an added uh, element there to, the, to man's responsibilities before God on planet earth. Um, there's also what I've called the vegetarian decree. Uh, I'm a meat eater. I'm a carnivore. I'm not a vegetarian. Um, but originally we were all vegetarians, including the animal kingdom, because uh, he does say in this section that, that, man is, um, that, that for man and for birds and animals on the earth, there is plant and seed and every tree with fruit uh, and seed the, with seed in it that is good for food. So there's this statement about what man's... What, what man is to eat and what the animal kingdom is to eat. And this is an indication, and again, another sort of uh, argument against any kind of evolutionary model because there's no bloodshed. There's no killing of animals for food at this point. Okay, So it's another important, important feature that we'll probably talk about at length uh, at a later time. But um, So that's the, what I call the vegetarian decree. Obviously, that goes away. Um, God's verdict on everything that he made, he says, Behold, it was very good. So a more superlative commentary at the end of his, this creation process of looking at everything and seeing all that he made and saying it is very good. And there's evening and there's morning the sixth day. So just in a few minutes, with me almost out of breath, we went through the whole creation narrative. Quite, 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 a, quite a feat. Um, we made some uh, uh, comments last week or some sort of some notes about this creation narrative. We've, we've made these kinds of, we've, we've noted these kinds of things um, periodically throughout, but just a reminder that when you look at this creation narrative, 
Um, as much as we can get mired in the details or be, be feel sort of some kind of defensiveness to defend the creation narrative against the uh, discoveries of modern science and all of that, what you see over and over again is the sovereign work and purposes of God on display. And when you and I as born-again believers with the indwelling spirit giving us eyes to be able to see and understand the truth of God, what we should see when we come before a creation narrative like this is we should see the grandeur and power and majesty and awesomeness of God. And we've talked about some of these, uh, these components of creation, these days of creation, and tried to at least create somewhat of a mental picture of what, what had to have been happening. When you start talking about, for example, separating the, the land from the seas and, and just the power that had to be exhibited in that period of time with the tectonic shifting of the earth and bring, uh, just, again, we talked about this um, at some length as we, as we went through these days, but it's just a, a display of God's sovereign work and purpose that we're seeing here. We're also seeing God's, God's designing work and, and, and his work of bringing order out of disorder. And you see this language of separation that's repeated throughout here to where he's separating light from darkness and earth from the sea. And if you think about, for example, uh, man's habitation is principally on earth and, and habitation on the sea is fraught with risk and it can't be sustained apart from connection to the earth. Okay, so it's not to say that the seas are bad and the earth is good, but it's, it's a part of, of sort of evidencing God's order of things, it's particularly as it relates to man's habitation and the sustaining of man as an image bearer of God. Um, and so, again, if you think about God's work um, in separating things, God is about separating things that are disorderly, chaotic, unrighteous, unholy, to things that are orderly and righteous and holy and, and fulfilling and satisfying. So you see that, that sort of that principle of God's work all throughout Scripture, right? And, I mean, even when you look at the calling of Abraham, or even before that, sort of the calling of Noah out of a crooked and perverse generation, right? There's this separation that God is routinely doing. Um, he calls us out of darkness and into light as, as part of his salvation um, metaphor that he describes. So, again, just another example of God's character and his work of creation. You also see God's creativity that brings about all this color and diversity and all the hues and and edges and shapes of creation, just another indication of God's amazing uh, creativity uh, as a creator. We also mentioned that the Old and New Testament writers that reference creation are usually calling the reader to worship the creator. Again, when you go on in scripture and you see references to creation or God's creative work, it is almost invariably in the context of of setting apart God as majestic and powerful and worthy of praise and worthy of worship. So when we look again at the details of creation in the creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, the same thing should be true. That as the, as the psalmists do this and as the prophetic writers do this, all throughout Scripture you see, you see these references to God's creative work, and it's, and it's often to say, look, this is, this is our God. See him in all of his creative majesty and power and glory Know your place and worship him. And those whom he has called unto himself, worship all the more in gratitude 
and thanksgiving and praise because you have been brought near to the all-powerful creator God. So it's that kind of idea that we see uh, in this creation narrative um, that should sort of render our hearts in, in a posture of worship and praise to him. So carrying forward now, um, I want to just kind of make another note about the creation narrative as, as it's played out before us in Genesis chapter 1, and then do a little bit of work in, in, in talking more fully about this. In the Old Testament, in addition to drawing our hearts together to praise and to see this majestic God in his creative power, the Old and New Testament writers are also, when they reference back to the creation account, are, are confirming the authority, the accuracy, the inerrancy, the inspiration, the historical veracity of Scripture in general and of the Genesis narrative in particular. This is a huge, important point for us to recognize as it relates to our understanding and proper interpretation of Scripture, whether we're looking at Genesis chapter 1 and following or whether we're looking at Romans chapter 5. Okay? The Old Testament and New Testament writers, when they refer back to the Genesis account, they are confirming the authority the veracity, the historical veracity of Scripture, and in particular, the Genesis record of creation. And we see this over and over again. We talked about this a number of weeks ago. It, wasn't, it hasn't been until the last couple of hundred years that the majority of, of professing Christian people would ever have cause or reason, reason to doubt the historical veracity of Genesis chapter 1. It was largely assumed to be as it's written, understood as it's written, Literal six 24-hour days of creation, nothing to be confusing there, not hard to understand, and a faithful um, acceptance of God's power as, as creator. But in, in the last 200 years, you had several things that took place that brought doubt into the Christian community in their view of the creation narrative. And a lot of that had to do with early, um, early uh, developments in geology, and conclusions that were drawn about what was being uh, uncovered and discovered in the geologic record. Again, we'll talk about that in just a minute uh, and some, some of the things we need to be careful of when we think about that time period. Um, there were things that, that came into be as a, in that time period a couple hundred years ago um, as a result of some of this geologic discovery and dovetailing with that was uh, Darwin's publishing of Origin of Species and again, this evolutionary model as it relates to the origin of, of uh, the physical life on earth. Um, so all of these, these discoveries or, or sort of new uh, ideas about scientific discovery and exploration brought doubt into the Christian community and, and into the Christian conscious. I mean, it was very, uh, it was very uh, uh, pervasive. It became very pervasive. And, and what you had happening, is, and what, what we see today still, is this, this Christian mindset or this, this compulsion to somehow save Scripture from science or save science from Scripture or something like that. It's like a confusing mix. Like you have these ideas and these theories that have been postulated about how to understand, how should we understand the Genesis creation narrative in light of all of this scientific discovery that's occurred over the last 200 years. And there's this compulsion on the part of what I would consider to be, I assume, otherwise faithful, sincere, professing Christian people. How do we sort of rescue the scripture from the discoveries of science? But it also gets flipped over. How do we sort of rescue science or protect science from, 
from the encroachment of Scripture. Works both ways, and you see it playing itself out in some of the literature that's written and the arguments that are put forward. So what you had happening, and we talked about this, I just want to kind of review some of the some of the ideas or theories that were put forward to try and reconcile, if you will, scientific discovery with Scripture, although it wasn't really very reconciling in, in, in the end. But you had uh, something called gap theory, which was put forward, again, in the same time period in late 18th to early 19th centuries. And this gap theory uh, was uh, this 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 assumption that there was a gap in time that exists between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. There is a gap on the page, and it's white space between the ink, but they're putting like eons of time in between those verses, okay, is that's the theory, um, that God made the world, and then something happened that caused it to become without form and void, okay? So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then you have this gap of time. Something happened in that gap such that, verse 2, and the earth was formless and void, okay? So there's a gap there. That's where they insert time. And again, why would you have as a professing believer, a professing Bible-believing, believe, uh, Bible-believing Christian in the late 18th to early 19th century, why would you feel compelled to insert that gap? There's a lot more time than six 24-hour days in, in creation. That's what science is telling us. So somehow we have to expand. We have to, we, in other words, we don't want to do violence to the integrity of Scripture, that's what I'm saying. I think that these people were well-intentioned, in a sense, because they, they wanted to preserve some integrity around Scripture and its authority, but they had to sort of insert things to sort of reinterpret it. And, and all they were doing was trying to give more time, allow for more time in the creation narrative. So you have this gap. could be a very long duration of time. I mean, in other words, if it's a gap and there's nothing there, you can kind of make it what you need to make it in terms of time. So um, it could have even been millions of years. Uh, during this gap, they would say um, that that's, the, that's when the so-called prehistoric creatures lived and died. So that's when the dinosaurs emerged and then died. So again, before you get to the fall, you have death of prehistoric creatures in this gap, this literary gap there. Um, they also would uh, theorize that that's when uh, Lucifer, the angel Lucifer, was in charge of the earth at that time during this gap. Um, and then he fell from grace. Um, and they would allude to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 to talk about this, this fall of Lucifer. And God judged the earth as a result of Satan's fall and him taking a third of the angels of heaven with him in this fall. And uh, he, he destroyed the earth during this gap period with what they would call a Luciferian flood. So there was a flood as a judgment of Lucifer and his fall and his rebellion against God. And then after this is when God remade the world in six literal 24-hour days as outlined in Genesis chapter 1. Okay? And so that's why when you see the earth in chapter 1, verses 2 and following, it starts off, the Spirit of God is hovering over the surface of the deep because there was a Luciferian flood as a judgment against... So you, you kind of follow, Right? So that's the gap theory, but the, the primary motive there in, doing, in coming up with this kind of uh, way to try to interpret this is to rescue Scripture from the discoveries of science that say, at that time, um, thousands and thousands to possibly millions of years. I mean, that's what the geological 
uh, conclusions that were being drawn at that time would say. You move from that to uh, progressive creationism and its companion, the day-age theory of understanding uh, the six days of creation. This is mid-19th century. Um, this, the six days referred to in the Genesis account, Genesis account are not literal 24-hour days, but they are much longer periods of time, epochs of time. Again, that, ish, that, that, that burden of time. We've got to have much more time in the creation narrative to, to make it make sense because science is telling us that the age of the earth is this long, not this long. Okay, that's, that's the motivation here. Um, and so the progressive creationist would adopt a day-age understanding of the six days of creation, meaning that they're not literal days, but they're, they're uh, if you will, symbolic days. They're epics of time. And they might refer to passages of Scripture like in, 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 um, that say, with the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Uh, and again, we talked about that, about how that's um, really uh, not uh, supported by the text of Scripture, by the language, by the use of yom in concert with an actual ordinal number. Um, this reference to evening and morning the first day, I mean, over and over again, you have this, this indication that we're talking about a day, as you would understand Anyone reading would understand a day. So if you're going to adopt a, an old earth uh, view of the origins of the universe, then you're going to have a difficult time from just the text of Scripture consistently uh, arguing for something longer than a 24-hour period of time. Just the text itself does not a- adequately support that. You really have to stretch to get there. But the progressive, progressive creationist would probably argue for that the Big Bang started it all, but they're still adopting sort of evolutionary naturalistic ideas about how things evolved over long periods of time. But God was involved in the creation um, in sort of these episodes of these bursts of creative uh, power over these long periods of time. Again, I'm, I'm just very roughly summarizing these ideas. Again, to accommodate science. Then they had the framework hypothesis. This was the early 20th century. Um, and this is a simp- essentially an attempt to reclassify the genre of Genesis into something other than historical narrative. Um, so using figurative language or poetic devices in the text, they think that they have shown that the first chapter of Genesis is uh, more figurative in nature. Um, it's not to be taken as, as historical narrative as eyewitness testimony of God saying, listen, no one was there but me. And let me tell you what happened. That's the problem. What's the problem? Right. Right. And they and the in the eyewitness testimony piece, they they you're talking about historical science. And so there's a difference between historical science and observational science. And so the assumptions that are being made to draw conclusions about historical scientific discovery are, are loaded with all kinds of presuppositions, but they're not, no one, no one was there but God, or the primordial ooze, or something. Like, in other words, no, no scientist was there to observe these things, right? But God is saying... There was a spiritual correct? Yes. No, that's because that's literally recorded history. You talking, talking about in the, in the gap theory? You talking about the yeah, time? Yeah. No, I mean that's just that's just a silent period without you know prophetic revelation taking place. But it's not 
what this is referring to. This is referring to, um, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, this, this is inserting, this is just inserting the concept of time into the text. That's right. And so what it's saying is, in other words, you, you, you don't have, like, like from the time of the close of the Old Testament canon, you do have extra biblical writings, and some, some people would adopt them as biblical writings. Um, you have spiritual writings. You have, I mean, you have, you have history taking place and recording, recorded history being documented. But that's not what's being postulated for the gap theory in Genesis chapter 1 between verses 1 and 2. That's just the insertion of time unrecorded time, but it's really bringing, from, bringing discoveries. Time is recorded. It's day one, 24 It is recorded, but they would say that there is, that that 24-hour period didn't start until Genesis chapter 2, or Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Okay. So. Um, so, again, the framework hypothesis, again, tries to totally cast the, the text of Genesis into a different genre, a different literary genre. And if you do that, then you don't have to take it literally, right? I mean, that, that helps. That's, that's kind of nice, right? I mean, if I'm trying to postulate, it's, it helps. I mean, if I don't have to take it literally, and if it, the, whole, the whole genre of the text, not just the, the literal 24-hour days and the reference to the days is problematic, but the whole account in itself is to be understood as a completely different genre of literature using different literary devices that doesn't force a literal interpretation, then I'm good. I don't... I don't I, I'm, I'm not bound as a Christian to embrace any kind of 24-hour-a-day creation, six-day creation. So that was why these things came about. My point in all this, guys, is not to go too deep into this again, but just to remind us of the fact that these, these things are all stemming from those presuppositions that we talked about early on. These recurring presuppositions, and you'll see them over and over and over again in modern science, and things that are written, if you go to your, your news websites and go to the science section and read of all the things that they're discovering and all the new things that confirm this and confirm that about evolution and the origin of the universe and billions and billions of years, just, just be a, an astute reader and start to look for the presuppositions that are just already there before they even draw their conclusion about the discovery. There are preset ways of thinking that are informing their conclusions that they're drawing at the very outset. Those that we identified as most common are that man and man's ability to reason is the final arbiter of all truth, right? So man can look at things in the, in the created universe and draw conclusions that are going to be unvarnished and untainted by anything other than man's ability to reason, or uh, they won't be tainted by anything. And we've stated that, no, man is fallen, man has limited capacity. The, the driving presupposition of naturalism meaning that everything in the physical universe can and indeed must be explained by time and chance and the laws of nature working on matter. In other words, you can't insert anything supernatural into the, into the conversation. So you narrow-minded, Bible-thumping Christians who want to talk about God doing something supernaturally, you can't do that. Sorry, it's against our rules. That's kind of the nature of the argumentation that you often read in, the, in these scientific uh, journals and articles and whatnot. They just say... That's, you know, they throw a flag, 15-yard penalty, personal foul. I mean, there's no, there's no real explanation. They just, they just reject it outright. So you cannot in, introduce supernaturalism into any discussion about scientific discovery around the origins of the universe. It's just, yeah, it's just not allowed. It's just not allowed. It's against the rules. So, sorry. 
That's just that's really it's really how kind of silly it becomes. But that's 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 what they do. Uh, also, uniformitarianism is another major presupposition. And that just says that the natural processes have always acted in the same manner and rate and intensity as we see operating today. Which, I mean, when you read Genesis chapters 1, 1 through the close of the creation narrative there, or you get to, you know, the curse in Genesis chapter 3, or you look at the flood. I mean, these are not ongoing uniformitarian type processes from the very beginning. There have been things that have happened that have completely changed what we see today. Now, there is natural processes in place today, but you have to interpret what you see today in light of creation as a cataclysmic kind of occurrence, the flood, the worldwide flood. These have bearing on the cosmos and on the physical earth that we, that we study and that we examine. So again, they would say that no, everything has been operating the same way since the very beginning with no change. That's how they come up with their calculations and their time frames and all that. So they start with the Big Bang, and it goes from there. And it's just been operating the same with the same laws, physical laws, for millions and millions and millions, billions and billions of years. And it's never been any different. We talked about how, for example, in Genesis, what you see is you see the creation of a mature earth, right? I mean, from at the outset, before there's even a fall and a curse and before there's even a universal flood as judgment on the earth, you see God apparently creating a mature earth already. You see the, the earth flourishing with trees that are bearing fruit and with seeds in them. And when, when Adam and Eve are created, you don't see them created in an infancy, right? You see them created as adults. So in some way, God created a mature earth. So even from the very beginning, before you had cataclysm take place in the universal flood, or before that, the fall, and whatever effects that had on the created order and, and, and sort of the details of it, you had a, a mature earth that was created. How mature? I don't know. I mean, that doesn't say. But it's obviously, from the text, it's, it's, not, it's not, you know, primordial, uh, you know, subatomic in nature, and it's, it's not it's what we would observe as... A, a version of infancy, whether it be a, a, a human infant or, you know, it started with all seeds. And, and then, you know, you see on one day, you see the earth sprouting forth, bringing forth vegetation and filling the earth with vegetation. So another presupposition that you have to keep in mind that's uniquely different. So you have this naturalism and this uniformitarianism that's informing everything that they conclude. Everything against a supernatural creator God who created in six literal days. I know it sounds crazy. It sounds like supernatural, right? It sounds like how, I mean, we couldn't possibly, how can you possibly say that? Well, I, I, I God said it. I don't know what to tell you. That, that's just not allowed. You just cannot introduce that kind of thinking. So when we get to the text of scripture itself and we expand our thinking on this, we need to recognize that, again, Broadening our thinking around the, the fuller revelation of God's word, you see in the Old and New Testament, you see references to the creation account, and the creation narrative, particularly Genesis chapters 1, Genesis chapters 2, but certainly beyond that. Even Genesis chapters 1 through 11, who many would want to sort of say is not um, historical narrative, but is more mythological or some kind of saga that is not to be taken in any way literally. Um, these references that you see 
again, confirm the historicity and accuracy of the text of Genesis chapter 1. So if you and I are overwhelmed by the discoveries of science and feel compelled to rescue Scripture from science and from the discoveries of science, to somehow protect Scripture from the assault of science, and also make sure that Scripture is not trying to sort of step into the realm of science where it really doesn't belong. You you see how that works? I mean, it cuts both ways. We want to make sure that we don't sort of try to insert, you know, biblical teaching when it's really more about sort of religious faith and practice. It really doesn't touch on things of science, even though the creation narrative is talking about God making things and and the origins of the universe. So in, in the efforts to do that, we need to recognize that we are succumbing to the same presuppositions that secular scientists adopt. We're adopting the same presuppositions. And, and we are creating very significant problems for ourselves around our view of the authority and historicity and veracity and inerrancy of Scripture. Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Does that sound familiar? That's what it says in Genesis chapter 1, right? God spoke, and it came into being by the word of the Lord. Nehemiah 9, 6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heavens of the heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. Exodus 20, 8 to 11, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So again, you're going to have to start reinterpreting more passages of Scripture the further out you go. Think about the days of creation. Creation day one, God created day and night. We'll listen to Job 26.10. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters and the boundary point between light and darkness. Creation day three, God gathered the water in one place so that dry land could appear. Listen to Psalm 33.7. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Or in Job 38.8-11, Or who shut the sea with doors when it burst from the womb, when I made thick clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. What are you going to do with that? Day three, vegetation. Psalm 104. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants, for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden his heart, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Day four, God created the sun, moon, and stars. Listen to Psalm 136, 7 to 9. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. Direct references to Genesis chapter 1. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. That's Jeremiah 31, 35. What about the creation of man? Psalm 8, 5 to 8. Remember that you have made, excuse me, Job 10, 9 says, Remember that you have made me like clay and you will return me to the dust. 
Psalm 8, 5 to 8. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. These are direct references to the Genesis narrative, Genesis 1 narrative. What about the New Testament? We talked about this a few weeks ago. John 1, 1 puts Jesus right in the fat middle of creation when it says that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Any questions? I mean, it's pretty comprehensive, right? So there's the incarnate Son, the incarnate Word in creation, and everything that was made was made through him and by him, and nothing that was made was made by anyone other than him. In other words, I mean, I'm not even saying that right. It's just, you get it, right? When you look at Luke 3, 22 to 38, and you see the genealogy of Jesus, Luke seemed to think it was really important to trace the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. What are we going to do with that? Jesus himself in Mark 13, 19, for in those days, he's talking about the judgment and the tribulation, for in those days there will be such tribulation has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. That's Jesus himself. He, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 24, he says, You, Father, loved me before the foundation of the world. Mark 10, 6 through 8, talking about marriage. And really, this, this to me is, I think, one of the more compelling arguments for for Jesus and his embracing of uh, full, full belief and affirmation of the historicity of the creation narrative. He's talking to the Pharisees about divorce, and he's basically telling them that, that Moses made an accommodation because of your sin about giving a certificate of divorce. And he says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. That's a quote. This is Jesus talking about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's in Genesis chapter 2. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What God therefore has joined together, let not man separate. Now, some would say that Jesus, when he's, ma- when he's making these kinds of statements, he's merely accommodating to his audience who would have believed in the historicity and veracity of Genesis chapter 1. But Jesus, of course, being incarnate God, knew... That, of course, you know, the world evolved over billions and billions of years and that God kind of started it and stepped in or whatever. In other words, they would argue that Jesus is kind of accommodating to his audience. He knows everything, but he's, he's accommodating to them. Well, what kind of argument would it be for Jesus to try to talk to them about the accommodation that Moses made around divorce by accommodating to the Genesis narrative and, and, and saying that, yeah, okay, I'm going to use it as though it's literal, but really, I'm accommodating what is stated as literal and what you believe is literal to just make it understandable to you. I mean, think about the, the absurdity of that kind of argumentation. Jesus is saying, no, God made them male and female from the beginning of creation. He did that. Okay? Now, what about the atonement? What about the gospel? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 21 to 22, Paul says, For as a man came, for as by one man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. 
He further talks about this in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because we all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. I mean, these are very explicit terms. This is not figurative language that the Apostle Paul, he is teaching preceptively on the atonement, on the meaning of the atonement. And he's invoking Adam. He says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not yet like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for many died through one man's trespass. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded by the many. So there's this comparison of the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus, and the Apostle Paul trying to instruct people about the gospel and the atonement and the meaning of the atonement. Literal references to Adam. Guys, listen, here's what we'll close with. I just want to make the point one final time and appeal to us to be ever vigilant around our trust and confidence in the truth of Scripture against all adversaries and opponents. This battle is a battle over worldview. It's not a battle over the particulars of science. It's a battle over the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, and it's not just this objective pursuit of truth, and we're just all pursuing the truth wherever it might lead us. That's not what this is about. This is a clash of opposing worldviews. Listen, I want to close with this. Listen to Jesus' high priestly prayer and how he talks about what we are called to and how we are to be set apart in the truth. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Separation. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. For while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Guys, listen. If we're going to defend and stand in and proclaim the word of God, guess what the world is going to do? Hate you. Scoff you. Think you are crazy. Call you goofy. Say that you're not thinking scientifically. All these things. That's what we need to expect. We're talking about a worldview here. 
I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify, set apart, separate them in the truth. Your word is truth, is what he's saying. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in the truth. This high priestly prayer, shortly before he's to be arrested, tried, and executed to take on the sin of all mankind and to be the climactic point of God's redemptive plan in redeeming an elect people for, for God's own. He is outlining for us this idea of worldview. Who do you worship? Who do you serve? Why are you here? What is your purpose? And what will be the world's response to you if you are one of mine? And how are you to be set apart? Or in what are you to be set apart? In the word, you are to be set apart, sanctified in the truth. God help us. God keep us from getting fearful or feeling like we have to accommodate and somehow degradate the word of God for the sake of worldly thoughts and philosophies. Please. Okay. You know, so we have this idea of these separate spheres of authority you're talking about, like here's science over here and here's religion. And then you even have coming up a little bit saying, no, here's evolution, here's creation. Maybe they overlap. That's theistic evolution. You try to mix it. But that's overlapping magisterial or authority. You see these spheres. But it's like this yin-yang idea that somehow these are two terrible authorities. It nope. took me years to figure this out that there's no competition here. Science is nothing but a way of thinking. And so what you have is the infinite knowledge of God. It's a circle with no edges. And there's a tiny dot in there that's our little bit of trying to figure out God's creation, the one little spot of his creation. Mm-hmm. He wants to take the pride to compare that to God's knowledge. Right. That's what we have to stand on is the authority of God's word. And there's no comparison at all. Amen. Amen. thinking. And Romans 1 says that they were futile in their thinking that's right. in their hearts. That's right. It's, it comes down to faithfulness versus sin, really. Faithfulness to the truth versus sin and self-centeredness, thinking we know better. The original sin was against God. That's exactly right. We're going to talk about that, by the way. Did you guys read ahead again? <laughs> Even those um, scientists, some of them, I don't know who it was, Einstein and all that, they said that there was something greater. They didn't know what it was because it, it wasn't revealed to them. But right. Were, it was not this stuff that they were involved with partially. Yeah, scientists have to work really hard to right. remove. Make up all the stuff. Yeah. yeah. That reminds me of the, the tension of man and the Tower of Babel. You know, where they were for themselves and, and their thought process. You're reading ahead again. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. When you hear something kind of crazy, your ears go up. It's just the sermon. It just doesn't match. That's right. That's right. It should That's right. I mean, it should. I mean, and I'm telling you, when you start thinking about the, the, the presuppositional thinking, the way people think yeah. according to their own predetermined ideas about what is true and what is not true, and you start reading these scientific conclusions, their presuppositions are just screaming off the page every time you read it. That's right. Like you were saying, you know, at one point, scientific philosophers get to the point that they're like, okay, where does matter, time, and space come from? And they realize there's something outside what we know. But they'll intone all sorts of things like the unifying theory, you know, that Stephen Hawking's going to be master of the universe when he figures out the math, mm-hmm. you know, versus the, the initial.
vertical mover, the prime mover, all these different terms they give, but, but God forbid, their God forbid, that they ever intone Creator God as that, as that mover. That's right. That's right. All right, well, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.